Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Join us for a journey as we go back to the great civilizations of the past. Who were the people? What were they like? How did they begin? And how did they end? Let's find out on episode 88, the 680s B.C. The 80s. I love the 80s. Who doesn't? MTV, Big Hair, Madonna, Duran Duran, Margaret Thatcher, Ronald Tear Down This Wall, Reagan, Gorbachev. I'm Ferris Bueller, E.T., and my favorite, The Princess Bride. My name is Inigo Montoya. You kill me. And how about Rubik's Cube? Jean jackets, penny loafers. Ah, and there was my ninth grade dance when my date ignored me the whole time. Because I was wearing orange shoes and general teenage angst, but otherwise... Oh my god, it's the 680s, not the 1980s. That's cool. (laughs) I love the 680s too. It's got all kinds of Iron Age adventures. Sinakarib is in a bad mood and kicks butt. The Greeks are colonizing all over the place and having naked Olympics, nations and rulers rise and fall. But first, Bernie, we have to talk about you. Who are you and what are you doing here? Well, I'm um, I'm here to be the first time my co-host with you, the fan of history. I'm definitely a fan of the fan of history. Um, I actually do have a history degree from Penn State. Wow. But I've, I haven't actually uh, never, you know, used it except for being a fan of history and, and things like that. I uh, started my own business after college and then I work in a business now. So um, this is uh, going to be a lot of fun. Um I'm excited to be able to do this. I hope Dan lets me do. I hope you let me do more of these. Maybe. Um, oh, that'll be good. I mean, the research was a lot easier than back in college when I had to go into the stacks and read into the little, you know, microfiche and stuff like that. And um, I, I totally enjoyed researching this for this podcast. Um, I, 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 it's sort of like the link between the 
classical age and the bronze age and this iron age stuff and there's a lot of things that go on in the 680s you'd be surprised almost like the 1980s i'm quite surprised actually at how much information you can find about these old decades when i started the podcast i thought it would be like 30 episodes and then we'd be at uh, 500 but no or maybe 50 episodes one per decade but we've broken that this will probably be more than one episode. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I really found I found a lot of stuff. There's a, I mean, you're doing the whole world, too, so it's not just one area. Although, you know, there's a lot more information on some of the civilizations that were more, they were still writing. They didn't, you know, they didn't lose everything. So we have a lot of information on the, on the Near East, like Sennacherib. Yes. And the Sack of Babylon. Ooh. I, I have to tell the listeners how much I put you through, and I'm so thankful because you have done all the research for this, mm-hmm. and I'm going to force you to do all the editing as well. So thank you very much in advance. Well, as they say, you have to push yourself out of your comfort zone, so that will <laughs> also be pushing me out of my comfort zone. But hey, that's what life is about, right? Absolutely. You have to tell me a little more about your history degree. How much uh, work was that? How long did you study history at Penn State? Uh, well... I, it took me five years to get through school because I also studied beer drinking at Penn State. So, um, <laughs> um, so yeah, five years. Um, the advanced, the regular history classes are pretty much like your standard history classes, the earlier classes. But then the more advanced ones, they um, they teach you how to learn history. You know, you, there's different types of sources. You have your your secondary sources, which are other historians, and then maybe even. You know, today you could say things you'd find on the Internet and then the primary sources, which is where you go down and you read, you know, what Sennacherib wrote and what was written there. And, I mean, the true scholars, they get right into the the translations of a Greek or a cuneiform and that kind of thing. So, you know, you could study, like, the smallest little episode and just really dig into it. And I think, like, you know, when you learn history that way, it makes you... You know, remember when the History Channel first came out and it was kind of interesting and there was good history and now they're doing like aliens and just stuff like that. And just for a lay person who doesn't know how to study history and they'll, you know, watch one of those shows and they'll say, oh, see, yeah, the aliens built the pyramids. But there's, you know, there's scholars that study the smallest detail for years, you know, and, and then you can't just discard what they're, you know, they're studying and say, oh, yeah, an alien built the pyramids. Yeah, there have been so many interesting historical facts that I have learned from some questionable source, and then I've been so disappointed when I found out that they were not really true, right. such as the Chinese uh, circumvention of the world in the 15th century. That's right. That was one of, a book that turned out to be pseudo-history, I believe, right? Yes. And uh, yeah, also the like the this worldwide civilization in 10,000 BC and stuff. That was, oh, this is so fascinating. Oh, okay. It was a load of crap. Yeah, exactly. Well, we're definitely not going to give any loads of crap in this podcast. That's right, right? Yeah, we're going to stay to what the historian. We're going to stick with what the historians uh, tell us. Right. And I'm sure, that some, you know, when the, they wrote the history, so some of it's going to be, especially this era, we have some fantastic stories, I could tell you. That have. Yes, I've also been surprised at how much new information is coming out, even since I started the YouTube channel back in 2014. Some things have been outdated already. It is amazing. Because they've, yeah, but work is ongoing on ancient history. Mm-hmm. And genetic study is, is great too, although, you know, they could study these, the genes of the, you know, from past and they could find out what people lived where. And it's, it's totally, definitely history is, is, um, 
having sort of a renaissance with a lot of new information coming out. Absolutely. Do you listen to any history podcasts? I do. I listen to Dan Carlin when he was able to come out with one and uh, History on Fire. Oh. Danelli Bo- History on Fire, Danelli Bolelli, his name is. Was that the guy who was in uh, Hardcore History Addendum recently? Yes, that's him. He's an Italian guy. Yeah, He's he done. was very good. He is good. His his podcasts are great. I um, I I I make on the side for my regular business. I make T-shirts in my office, oh. and I listen to podcasts. So I listen to your podcast. I listen to Dan Carlin. I make them like on a, with an iron, so it's time consuming, and listening to the history podcasts totally. So we can't uh, start uh, selling uh, Final History T-shirts yet. Whenever you're ready. <laughs> okay. I've been in the T-shirt business for like twenty some years. So yep. Okay, listeners, tell us if you want Fan of History t-shirts, and we'll make something up. And then if you sign up for the Patreon page, we'll send them to you, t-shirts. Oh, don't, don't promise anything we can't do, but that, that is an option. <laughs> gotcha. It, any other podcasts? Um, that I listen to, uh, mostly just those history podcasts. Your podcast, History on Fire, Dan Carlin, sometimes uh, Freakonomics. I like Freakonomics. I don't know if you've ever listened to those guys. Oh. No, I haven't. Yeah, that's sort of like a history, too, because a lot of motivations are through things that are really economical, you know, through economics, you know. It's, um, mm. People do things for their own reasons. I mean, you study economics, you realize why things happen. Those are the main ones. And you listen to, to all of Final History, right? Uh, most of them, I have to ah. say, most of them. There's quite a few. I, I did go through a lot, most of them, and the YouTube channel as well. Hopefully we will have better audio than the earlier episodes. We have taken precautions for the audio. I hope it works. I hope so as well. Uh, anything else you want to tell uh, the listeners about yourself before we start? Oh, about me? Yeah, one thing you might find interesting. I live in Scranton, Pennsylvania, which is the setting for The Office. If you oh, know the, the TV yeah. show The Office. And that's uh, the fictional. Well, I mean, it's a real city. They, they don't um, actually, they never filmed it here. But in the show, they always mention Scranton. So if there's any fans of The Office, they'll, they'll definitely be familiar with Scranton. So it's set in Scranton, but it's not really filmed in Scranton. That's correct. That's huh. correct. Okay, so thanks for the introduction. You're welcome. Let's get into the 680s BC. Okay. And we start out uh, with a major event. Yes, definitely. The Sack of Babylon. I mean, in the last podcast, we know that uh, uh, Sennacherib was dealing with Marduk Baladin. He was like his nemesis for his whole life. I mean, the man dogged him his whole life and then died in his bed. He never caught him. Yeah, that's an uh, amazing villain story. Right? It is. I mean, you can make a whole movie about that. So, but he finally did uh, die. And then uh, his ally, the Elamite king, Humban Nimena, he died. I love forcing people to say the names of Elamite kings. Oh, yeah, it's wonderful. I always wonder, the too, like, just think of these scribes had to carve that in cuneiform on these tablets with these names. names yeah, but just... why can't they be like Kurt or something? <laughs> I know. The Elamite king, Bob. Yeah. <laughs> what happened to him? <laughs> Maybe if we translate it that way. Maybe that's what Humbam Numena actually translates to, Bob. Probably Possible. not. <laughs> it's probably like uh, the glorious son of the universe or something. Oh, for sure. The glorious son of the universe, king of Asher. So so at this point, when he died, Sennacherib figured, you know what? I'm, this is enough. I'm going to just 
let's just take care of this Babylonian problem once and for all. And I'm sure there was, you know, like any, like in our countries today, there was probably factions, you know, where one side said, just turn that city into glass. It's, it's enough. We, we, we're being like wimps. We have to finish this once and for all. And other people probably said, oh, that's not a good idea. And eventually the ones who had the idea of let's, um, let's just finish the once and for all. Yeah, I think they, they have been trying to, the Assyrians have been trying to solve this problem for 200 years. We have seen so many different options of dealing with Babylon. Shalmaneser III was their friend, or he was friend with one faction and make sure that faction ruled Babylon. And that worked for a time. Some people tried to become king of Babylon, like Tiglath-Peleser uh, II. But uh, the, the solution isn't there. Maybe this is the solution. Maybe you just have to take off and nuke the site from orbit. Yeah, I mean, that's, I guess, if they tried everything else, they might as well, I guess he figured he would try this. So, yes. So in the last episode, I know you met, talked about the battle, the battle of... Yeah, the 691 battle, the battle of Halula. Right. Halula. Where, where we have these conflicting sources where the Babylonians say the Assyrians retreated. And Sennacherib, of course, says that he won, but... That's what all Assyrian kings say of everything. Mm-hmm. My opinion is the maybe the Assyrians did retreat, but it was a Pyrrhic victory because it seems after that that the Babylonians didn't have much left in the in the in the gun to fight back. So when he came back, there was really nothing left, and it just seems that they just swept right in and started the siege. It's pretty difficult to. Yeah, and we have this uh, guy, uh, Mushir Zib Marduk, who is the ruler of Babylon. Yep. Now allyless. And then it seems by 690 the siege just began. And from what I read, it seems like it lasted about 15 months, which must have been a lot of fun for, you know, them being the city, having the Assyrians building up their siege engines and their pretty cool how they would build a wall you know they build a ramp up to the wall and then come over the wall and just kill everybody basically yeah in 2016 i was in berlin in the museum there where they have uh, the actual gate of babylon in they, they have the gate they took it during the 19th century that's amazing and they they restored it it's uh, i think it's 22 meters wide and uh, so th- this is a well-fortified city. Yeah, I think it's interesting also that he goes uh, immediately for the city itself. And I think he also has allies in Babylon. There are still people who are pro-Assyrian in, in the country. Yeah. Do you think in he let them cities? out? Do you think he let them out of Babylon? Like, come out, everybody out before we come in and... I mean, how do you tell who's a good guy, I guess, or your ally and not when you go in there and once the rampage gets started? Yeah, I think the the ones who are allies are no longer in the city itself. Right, right. But rather ruling other cities nearby. Oh, yes, gotcha, right. Well, yeah, they definitely didn't have any, uh, and they didn't have, um, like in the Siege of Jerusalem, there was no field mice to eat up all the, all the leather, <laughs> no angel of death to save them. No. He just went in and let it, ha- let it have it. And it is a complete Assyrian victory. Mm-hmm. There's a, we, the most information we have is from an inscription from Sennacherib. Um, you want to read that? You want me to read that? 
my best Assyrian. Uh, I think you do good. Assyrian voice here. So this is the primary source then, Sennacherib telling. And we have reason to doubt this, but we'll talk about it later. Okay. So now, without further ado, Sennacherib. I swiftly marched to Babylon, which I was intent upon conquering. I blew like the onrush of a hurricane and enveloped the city like a fog. I completely surrounded it and captured it by breaching and scaling the walls. I did not spare his mighty warriors, young or old, but filled the city square with their corpses. I turned over to my men to keep the property of that city, silver, gold, gems, all the movable goods. My men took hold of the statues of the gods in the city and smashed them. They took possession of the property of the gods. The statues of Adad and Shala, gods of the city Ekalati that Marduk, Nahin, Ahe, king of Babylonia, had taken to Babylon at the time of Tiglath-Peleser, the first king of Assyria, I brought out of Babylon. After 418 years, I returned them to the city of Ekalati. The city and houses I completely destroyed from foundations to roof and set fire to them. I tore down both inner and outer city walls, temples, temple towers made of brick and clay, as many as there were, and threw everything into the Aratu Canal. I dug a ditch inside the city and thereby leveled off the earth on its site with water. I destroyed even the outline of its foundations. I flattened it more than any flood could have done in order that the site of that city and its temples would never be remembered. I devastated it with water so that it became a mere meadow. Pretty intense. I also heard that uh, he one goal with this operation was that there would be no place for a bird to land. <laughs> in the ruins of Babylon. There would be no nothing about ground. I mean, that's a pretty uh, intense. I mean, if you did that today, you would definitely be com- uh, convicted of war crimes. There's no doubt about it. <laughs> De- definitely. <laughs> now and I love the Assyrian propaganda thing. It sounds like he did all of this himself, and his men were just standing there yeah, taking... Right? Sort of being given <laughs> silver, gold, and gems. Right, right. And then, of course, he, you know, his son rebuilds it ten years later. Like, what did he? Did he even know where the foundations? Spoiler. Were? Oh, sorry, sorry. <laughs> Cut that out. <laughs> yeah, that, that's the main reason to disbelieve this story. But it is quite the story. It is for sure. I mean, well, I mean, that was their the Assyrians' way. Was it's you know, it's sort of a maybe you can make a moral judgment like. If they make you really afraid, they won't have. They only have to destroy one city instead of going out and destroying thirty cities. You know, in other words, when they pull up in front of your city because they destroyed that one, you know, just surrender. So, but this is so extreme for an Assyrian king. We haven't seen anything like this. There's been no rage like this directed to a single city, because when the Assyrians took cities, they usually just incorporated them into the empire. 
they transported the inhabitants of the city to some other place where they would have to defend the borders of Assyria. And then they took the city. And this treatment of the gods is... Nothing like this has happened before. They usually steal the gods. Right. And they respect the Babylonian gods. And this is probably what makes Assyrians so angry about this act. I mean, totally. It was like a temper tantrum. It could just like as if he destroyed the city and then stomped on it after it was already gone. Just it's, it's enormous. Its magnitude is so large. I, it's hard to understand where all this rage comes from. Well, it's, I think it's, um, he was just so frustrated with constantly having to fight them and could not, just seemed that they would not go away. I mean, it's also been said it's like a blood feud. They stole his oldest son. They took him away. Whoever knows what happened to him. I mean, they never found him, you know. So I think he was, his manhood sort of was at, at stake there. He had to really sh- finally show them, and he just, he couldn't build his his city anymore. He couldn't, and then never, because he constantly had to deal with Babylon. So I guess he figured, once and for all, let's just get rid of them. Yeah, I think we must remember here what Sennacherib really wants to do. He wants to build stuff. Mm-hmm. And also here, he gets to destroy a lot of stuff that other people have built so that he can have the most <laughs> glorious buildings. For sure. But I think I he's mean, also like missing his father. He, he was quite content when Sargon was conquering Babylon. But, and uh, the treatment Sargon gave to Babylon... Because then Sennacherib could stay at home and build stuff. But now Sargon is gone and he has to handle it. And I think that frustrates him a lot. I mean, yeah, for sure. I mean, even all the other campaigns he did was really, a lot of it was related to Babylon. I mean, he, when he had a, um, when the angel of death destroyed his whole army outside of Jerusalem, that was because he was punishing Jerusalem for siding with Babylon way back then. Yeah, so maybe this is... Uh, this is his choice for the final solution for Babylon, and it it won't work. But it's uh, at least it's something new they are trying. Yeah, you know it's, that's one thing about Sennacherib. He kept trying anyway. He's always he sounded like the wily coyote. You know, he's kind of always frustrated. Seems yeah. like a smart guy, but frustrated all the time. Uh, he's a romantic builder, and people won't let him do his thing. No, nope. all these responsibilities, it, somebody has to pay. Yep, I know. I'm going to just go out and destroy that city. I'll tell you. It's, um, the thing is that it was a holy city. So it's almost like if you think about, you know, like Rome today or, or Mecca or Jerusalem even, you know, today, like if somebody just went out and destroyed Mecca or, or destroyed Rome, even if they were your enemy, it, it, it wouldn't go over very well with the population. So it didn't go over very well with the Assyrians. Yeah, this is such a... Uh well, he will receive a lot of criticism for this act, and it will lead to his undoing. That the, the people of these times believed the god actually resided in the statue in the temple of their home city. That is the home of the god, and destroying the statues and the temples, it's a huge sacrilege. It is, it is. I mean, it's like the gods are actually fighting. And Sennacherib is taking on the gods. Mm-hmm. I guess he thinks, I guess maybe he, um, he, he kind of won, but in the end, what happened to Sennacherib? Mm, we'll find out All right. when we get there. We have to mention that the statue of Marduk himself, the main god of the Babylonian pantheon, was taken back to Nineveh and wasn't destroyed. Right, that is, that's, that's pretty amazing. I, I, I've, 
Um, if, I know, I know I've, I've talked to you about this before, but the Anne Rice book, it's called The uh, Servant of the Bones, where actually the story is that the, the, they put a person, his spirit, into the statue of Marduk so that he could do the parade because every year at New Year's in Babylon, they marched with the statue of Marduk down in a procession. And yeah. um, in the book, he's like an actual spirit lives inside the statue. So he does the they they put a person inside of it, his spirit. It's a whole you know witchcraft type of thing. But um, so that's the thing is the statue was actually the god. So that one it was he was too much too important. Marduk was way too important to even smash him. So they brought him back to Babylon. It's still a mystery to me how Assyrian religion works, but we will get into that in the 7th century BC because our sources will grow infinitely better for life in Assyria for for daily life but the Assyrian religion is still kind of a mystery we have this amazing tree that is depicted in a lot of places we don't really know what it's about and we also have Asher the main god of Babylon, who is all gods, and this weird brand of monotheism that sort of, oh, well, your god is just, he is Asher too. But then we have the Babylonian religion that is obviously a very strong influence on the Assyrians, and has been all of the time. And I think this is why why Marduk survives this slaughter of the gods. Very interesting. I, I, I look forward to doing some more research and hearing what you find out about what you have to say about that for sure. Yeah, we'll also see how actually ordinary people lived in Babylon because we have all these letters sent through the Assyrian Postal Service and they talk about uh, daily life. We, we had some of them in the 8th century. We know of Sargon's daughter's letter, for example. But the amount of... If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Uh, clay tablets found from the 7th century BC is... Super huge. They're still not all translated. They're actually right now looking for more people to learn cuneiform so that they can actually be translated. That's amazing. I mean, you, people, you, know, you have to realize how hard it was to, to even then, you know, to read and write. It's not like today where a child learns how to read and write. It wasn't really an alphabet, right? It was just these little marks on, yeah, a, we are getting closer. on a clay tablet. We are getting closer to the first Assyrian king who can actually read and write cuneiform. But none of them so far has been able to read and write. And imagine leading this empire without being able to read and write. I know your scribes could write anything they want, and you could say, "Hey, tell them we're gonna, uh, you know, tell them this or that," and the scribe could he could change it if he wanted to. I guess. I, I mean, he'd probably get flayed alive if he got caught. I wouldn't suggest changing something on Sennacherib um, or any of the Assyrian kings. Yeah, the the rest of the statues of the gods were destroyed, and the temples were defiled. And later, Sennacherib would spin this and say that his troops did it on their own, and it wasn't actually his fault. Yeah, he said it was his troops. But it's funny because in his in his uh, in his inscription itself, it says, "I ordered my troops to destroy the." But nobody could read and write, so it didn't matter. Nobody actually read that. No, it's only we that can see the inconsistencies. Exactly. And if a scribe tried to point it out, I think he would be in grave danger. Yeah, I would think so. I mean, pretty much anything in the ancient world, if you did wrong, you were put to death. It sounds like, you know, an average thing. Oh, if they do that, put them to death. Put them to the sword or, you know. I guess being put to death was, was better than being put to death through torture. Yep. Uh, after Sennacherib's death, his son Esarhaddon, uh, or maybe his PR people, would come up with the story that it was not only men who were fighting the gods too, and that basically Asher himself put the whooping on Marduk and his friends. That's so interesting. I know that if you, if the sources say that, you know, to make the story, to say that um, because people were mad that he destroyed Babylon, they made a spun a whole story that it was the gods and man were fighting. So the Assyrian gods were the victorious ones. And so that's how it ended up. So that's why it happened. But as we'll see that, you know, they sort of, I guess they make friends and try to repair the, the damage done. Yeah, I think there was a lot of problems following this sack. Yeah, totally. And then, um, obviously, they, well, the sources say that because of that, it ends up being the complete undoing of Sennacherib um, because he gets killed. Yeah, he stays with us for almost this whole decade, but in 681, something happens. Yep, so he's in the temple, in his temple praying, and his two sons, um, most sources say his older sons, killed him. Either they killed him with the sword, some sources say he was crushed by a giant statue. I love that version. Right? <laughs> I mean, it's so, like, fitting for, for Sennacherib. He's so, he's so frustrated. He draws all these things, and then in the end, he just gets crushed by a giant statue. 
And I think that version has his uh, some sons of him pushing the statue of the winged bull over him. I mean, that'd be a way to do it. Hey, hey, Dad, look over there. And, ah! <laughs> Push them. Yeah, but I, this is a good murder plan because uh, it was just a freak accident. Yeah, it was just a 50-ton statue just happened to fall. So sorry, Dad was crushed below statue. It's, it's really strange. <laughs> I mean, they would just blame it on... I guess they would say the gods, you know, did it because of his... Uh, his destruction of Babylon, so the statue just sort of stomped him. And while this happens, he's worshipping in the temple of Nisroch. Yeah. Who's that? I don't know. I, I was hoping you would know that. I am not Googling right now. Um, according to the Hebrew Bible, <laughs> Nisroch was an Assyrian god. So this is, uh, is it from uh, Kings, Second Kings 1937 and Isaiah 37, 38? where then his sons Adramelech and Shereser murders uh, Sennacherib in the temple of Nisroch. And uh, Wikipedia thinks that uh, Nisroch is actually Nimrod, ah. which is then uh, another problem. He, uh, Nimrod was the hunter, wasn't he, I believe? There is a person in the Bible called Nimrod. Oh, that's true too. So I think the, the, the Old Testament is not a good source for... Uh, Babylonian religion and if this is a god and it's not Asher, it's a Babylonian god which is then uh, uh, quite strange in itself why is Sennacherib worshipping in the temple of this Babylonian god? So maybe it's just the temple of Asher Oh, but if it were a Babylonian god, that is very interesting and then he goes in there maybe to say hey, I'm sorry about what I did to Babylon and then the god just crushes him <laughs> Maybe that's what happened. <laughs> that's a new theory. That's it. It had nothing to do with his kids. They were framed on the whole thing. There's like, I, we didn't do it. He, the god just, just got all mad and smashed them. Why I think it was the sons and not the god is uh, Sennacherib's choice of successor. Yes. I'm sure. Which is quite interesting. Yes, like during even during um, so after he lost his the, the the original crown prince to the Babylonians and the and the, when they had captured him, um, apparently they he he named uh, Ezar Hayden his son Ezar Hayden as the as the heir, but he had older sons the ones that we think killed him, so they didn't they didn't like that idea, and as is common in military dictatorships like that. Um, a lot of times there's a struggle for power. A lot of times they assassinate the, the ruler, being their father. And um, yes. so that's what seems to happen. Um, but Ezar Hayden, being that at the time when he was named the, the heir, um, Sennacherib apparently went to all the people and said, this is my heir, so that when, when this happened, he was already the... Um, you know, the chosen ruler. So it was pretty easy for the people to support him. So I guess what they say, well, what they say happened also was that Ezar Hayden was, I should say the brothers uh, started talking smack about their about the Ezar Hayden, saying he was, you know, not respecting his father, that he was up to no good. So he skipped out of town while Sennacherib was still alive. But then after he was killed, he came back into town and um, on the way in to, to take his uh, to fight his brothers, the his brother the um, the rebels switched over to Ezar Hayden's side. So it wasn't a very difficult 
fight. It wasn't a long, drawn-out civil war. It only took about 40 days, and then Ezar Hayden became the new king of Assyria. Good preparation for the succession by Sennacherib. Yeah, definitely good idea. Not like some of those kings who split their, you know, split it up between the three brothers, and then that's inevitably civil war ensues after that. Yeah, that was never the Assyrian way. I, I also think that Adramalik and Shereser, these the murder brothers, mm-hmm. that they, you could wonder why they were two. So they must have been like full brothers. They must have had the same mother. And I also see the influence of Esarhaddon's mother on Sennacherib, that the selection of Esarhaddon is very much influenced by Esarhaddon's mother, who was then probably a much more favorite wife of Sennacherib. Yep, and that happens a lot in these stories too, doesn't it, where the, where the harem, there's battles inside the, the court and the harem in the court and the different mothers of the sons. and yeah. And we will see, we will learn a lot more about Esarhaddon. And I think this was a very good choice on Sennacherib's part. Oh, I, I, I definitely agree with that. Um, it's, you know, it's like, do you watch Game of Thrones? Of course I do. I even podcasted three seasons of Game of Thrones. In oh, right. Game of Thrones chat, which you can find on any podcast app. And uh, I'm not too proud of that podcast. Oh. But it was, and I d- will never podcast about TV again, I think, because it was extremely stressful. You had to sort of get it out as quickly as possible, and then it had a one week lifetime, pretty much. Yeah. Well, well you, this is like podcasting Game of Thrones when you get into it, because this, the, you, you can't even write. I mean, the Game of Thrones almost has nothing on these stories. Of course. I mean, if you think about the intrigue behind the story of the mother, as our Hayden's mother, and these guys, and crushing them with the bull, I mean, you could just imagine they could have spent a half a season planning to throw the statue over on top of them. And it's amazing also these stories survive because we have seen, uh, of course, they survive because Esar Haddon wins, but we have seen suspicious death for Assyrian rulers that are just... uh, sort of uh, wishy-washed over or washed out of the history because the successor is the the rebel, like probably Sargon and Tiglath-Peleser. And there's no internet to get the little, to get the conspiracy theories now out. And there's this, you know, you had to be able to write that on a clay tablet and that's pretty much what's left, right? Yeah. Should we summarize the life of Sennacherib then, who has been with us for quite some time? I think so, Yeah. I, I, to me, he was a pretty – I mean, for all the trouble he had, he was really a good and able ruler. He, he wasn't – you know, um, he knew how to rule. He knew how to be a king. He was a good military leader. I mean, he had some setbacks, but for the most part, he was – you know, he wasn't really out getting defeated in battle. Um, yeah. As you said, he loved to build. He spent a lot of time building and he even knew how to build. He was an engineer. He must have studied engineering. Yeah, he was uh, quite the scholar compared to other kings. I mean, he's kind of a Renaissance man, really. I mean, Machiavellian, but Renaissance. I mean, building. He wrote poetry to his wife's his wife, the one he liked the most. Yeah, I wonder which wife that was. Maybe it was Nakia, the mother of Esarhaddon. Maybe it was. She was. Uh, she was very fine. I, I heard, very fine. She has is described as Sennacherib's second wife. I bet the first time he met her, it was like a dream date, you think? Yeah. Probably was. Oh, we don't know that the poetry was for her. We don't. Maybe it was for wife number 48. <laughs> Could have been. 
Oh, those those guys had the life, I guess. But I mean, he was so frustrated because he couldn't spend his time in his harem, couldn't spend time building. He always had to go to war. They stole his son. This Merodach Baladin character was constantly dogging him whatever he did. He must have been like, oh, Merodach Baladin again? Yeah, as he had done with Sargon. So he remained the nemesis for the new uh, Assyrian king when Sennacherib took over. Yep, and then, uh, yeah, that was another thing. His father died. That always bothered him. I guess he was always a he, Assyrian kings weren't supposed to die in office so or in battle either, I should say. So um, yeah, no, no, no other king ever did. Right. So that bothered him his whole life, and then at the very end, he gets crushed by a statue <laughs> or stabbed by his sons. <laughs> Either way, not too good. I ho- I hope to have a better end to myself. Uh, actually, being crushed by an ancient uh, Assyrian statue, I'm kind of interested in that as a way to go. When I'm like 102, yeah, I, I will you. be hanging out below uh, Assyrian statues and see if they fall down. Yeah, yeah, at 102, that would be fine. That's maybe there, there are some <laughs> big things true. in the British Museum. <laughs> I could maybe, we could plan that, you know, like um, with like an assisted suicide or something and just push the statue over on top of you. History podcaster crushed by <laughs> ancient statue. <laughs> Final history will finally have the amount of listeners I want. <laughs> well, that, that'll be some, <laughs> that'll be good. That should be on YouTube, actually. <laughs> I will be filming from the British Museum and put up some videos later this year. Oh, really? I'll keep an eye yeah, out for that I did it last too. year, but I will return there. And uh, Sadly, I missed the, missed the Ashurbanipal exhibition. It just ended. Oh, so it was in the British Museum from... Where is it normally? Uh, I think they, the British Museum has a lot of stuff in their story chambers. So okay. they brought out everything about Ashurbanipal. And had this exhibition for like nine months. It started right after I left uh, London, and it ended before I could get back. So I ah. missed it. Yeah, that's amazing to see that stuff. It really is. Um, you know, you, you you really connected the history. You see something. It's you know two thousand, three thousand, four thousand years old, and another human being, just like you or me, just you know making these figurines or artwork or gigantic. Gates. It's I am. Uh, I'm so impressed by the British Museum. You should really go there if you ever get to London. That goes for all the listeners as well. Uh, one thing that surprised me uh, during my 2018 visit was that they had removed all the massacre reliefs of Ashurnasipal II. They were just not there. I, I've made a video about it on YouTube. <laughs> like not politically correct, I guess. I think they were. Ah, they, they were definitely not politically correct. We're <laughs> so little like, this is what we did to all those bastards. I know. Such a different world. It's, I mean, like I just said, it, we're still humans, and, and we had the same brains and we're same desires and wishes, but just the, the, the I don't know, the disrespect for life was just such a different thing, you know, where, where people just, uh, just kill people in, yeah. in horrible ways. Okay, let's talk about Esarhaddon then, because he becomes the Assyrian king during this decade. Yeah, and um, so he becomes the king in around 681, and it sort of starts up for him again. So they, um, it was Merodach Baladin's son that decided, uh, all right, let's uh, carry on my father's tradition, and here's the new uh, king of Assyria. Let's let's bother him for a long time. So 
never ends. Oh my God, it never ends. So, um, but it didn't go. It's, it's a little. This one a little bit differently. So, um, after the murder of his father and uh, the uprising again from the um, Babylonians, he uh, uh, Ezra Hayden ordered his generals to that were stationed in Babylonia to march against the rebels and. Um, the Chaldean prince, he fled to the old refuge of his father. Um, so the rain opened up with great promise, and then it, soon, it started off again with, a, uh, with fighting the Babylonians. So, um, however, um, when he, this um, son of Maladoc Baradon, Baladon, sorry, fled, he was actually treacherously killed by the locals. Oh. You wonder why? Do we know why? Uh, probably they had, I would say probably the um, flattening of Babylon has something to do with it, in my opinion. Yeah. Probably. I mean, I think they said, let's stop messing with the Assyrians, please. <laughs> yeah, please, let's just submit. Right. So what, what happens is um, they try to, basically there's another rebellion, and Ezra Hayden puts it down pretty quickly. The, br the one brother is killed. By the when he tries to uh, find refuge, the other brother comes back, begs for mercy, and becomes the king of Babylon. Oh, and Ezar, he yes, he makes him the king of Babylon, and then Ezar Hayden goes back to the old style of you know being more involved in Babylon, where his father was not, you know, sort of a hands-off king, and then Ezar Hayden starts to rebuild Babylon, um, but this is just. You know, sort of the end of our decade here, and the the rebuilding really happens into the next decade. So that would probably cal carry on to the next podcast. Yeah, we'll talk about that when we get to the six seventies. But I'm yes, I'm so amazed that Esar Hedon himself thinks that his father's decision to sack Babylon was wrong. Mm hmm. Right. Well. I mean, maybe they had a bunch of years to think about it too. If he did it, you know, he did it in the beginning of the decade. By the end of the decade, he's his father's killed over. They probably took a lot of grief for seven or eight years, and then um, just put the rebellion down quick. And then maybe he said, "All right, we're just going to make peace with this. We're going to go back to the old way. We're going to pay attention to Babylon, and we're going to rebuild it." And I mean, I guess it worked for him anyway. I don't want to have any spoilers for what happens later. Yeah, it's uh, it's amazing that he makes this decision as a head-on. But uh, I think this would also put him in a very positive light in Babylon, in Babylonia, rather, in the country, that he he brought back the gods that were captured. This must have been Marduk and also gods that were captured earlier because the Assyrians had been capturing gods from Babylon before. Right. And then he showed his sort of positive intent to Babylonia. And maybe he thought this was the way to go and that we could finally have peace and quiet from Babylon. But of course, that's not going to work. Not forever. And to really spoil things, uh, this will, of course, end with the destruction of Assyria itself in 612, mainly by the Babylonians. They waited a long time, those Babylonians, to finally get back at the Assyrians, didn't they? I shouldn't say they waited, but it took them a long time. Yes. Yeah, that was because they didn't know how to fight like the Assyrians do. This uh, enormous uh, 
violence capacity that the Assyrians have have always colored this relationship that in the end it's extremely hard. We don't see any Babylonian armies go to Nineveh or to the earlier capitals before 612. But when they do, they will do it more thoroughly than Sennacherib did because I think this restoration became much easier because Sennacherib was actually lying in his inscription. He hadn't level the city to sand. Right. I mean, where would you start to rebuild if you turned it into a meadow? It would be a whole new city, pretty much. You wouldn't even know where to start. And, of course, the the reasonable decision, had Sennacherib destroyed the city this thoroughly, would have been to make another city the capital. Right. Because you have some great cities nearby. You could just just make them the, uh, the capital instead. Yep. Well, and then I guess that in the end, that's the lesson for, um, you know... For Assyria, I don't. Um, when you're really, really nasty, eventually you get to make a lot of enemies. Okay, if you're really looking ahead, I think this very clearly illustrates, as did Ashurnasipal II's policies, why the Assyrian Empire eventually fails and why the Persians are so successful when they are pretty much the Assyrian Empire 2.0 where they make a tiny, tiny change in foreign policy. And that is, okay, maybe we shouldn't massacre people. Maybe we shouldn't (laughs) level their cities. Maybe we shouldn't extort everybody like the Assyrians did. Maybe we should just make people want to be a part of empire. And that is the great breakthrough of Cyrus the Great, which I hope we can podcast about in a year or two. I, I hope so as well. Because people remember the Persian Empire much more than they remember the Assyrian Empire. And that is one of the big reasons for that is this change of policy for running an empire. Because the Assyrians have been so violent and cruel for 300 years. I mean, they make the Nazis look like, you know, wimps. Well, they didn't put up... uh, (laughs) They they were nicer to the Jews. They just took them away and made them Assyrians. (laughs) They didn't have uh, concentration camps. True that. True that. (laughs) And uh, they had... uh, I talked about it before, but once again in these times, immigration is an infected issue here in Sweden. And I just love the Assyrian forced immigration. Right. You have to become Assyrians, but we don't want to. No, now you're part of our <laughs> empire. Right, I know, right? And then send them to some border where they are identified as Assyrians. Now, now these people who are violent against us thinks you're Assyrians. Uh-huh, and you are Assyrians. <laughs> and if you think you're Assyrians, then we'll send reinforcements. I mean, it, it's, it's, it was a, obviously a whole different type of world. It's hard for people today to understand how that was. It was because there wasn't so many people. I mean, is this... You needed yeah. people to be there instead of just massacring everybody. I guess you brought a whole new population around and took you out of your. If you took you out of your home, you couldn't re- fight back too much many, anymore. Plus, we needed you there, so it was a win-win. Now we build yes. walls, and even when the Assyrians massacre people, it's it's in the thousands, not in the hundreds of thousands or or millions, like in the in right, World right. War II. Oh, I'm I was I'm not trying to. Um, I was definitely not trying to minimize the Nazis. They're horrible. Horrible. Eventually, we'll talk about them. Yeah. I, I'm still interested in doing my series on the murder attempts on Hitler. There is a first episode on YouTube. Oh, yes. Because 
Yeah, I did a first episode. You did uh, a first episode on on the I think it was forty two attempts to murder Hitler. Really, yes. I didn't realize there was that many. Wow! And he sort of became convinced that he was immortal. <sighs> I'm because sure. he survived so many assassinations. So there are some really good assassination attempts that should have succeeded. But Hitler was a very, very lucky guy. You know what would have worked? No. Crushing him with the giant statue. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Why didn't you think of that? <laughs> if you ever get a time machine, that'll be the way to do it. Okay, this is now becoming a huge tangent. Uh, yeah. We should return to the 680s. Okay. I think we're done with the Assyrians, right? I think so, yeah. Yeah, we can move on to another part of the world. Where do you want to go? Well, you'll just have to wait and see on the next episode of Fan of History. But hint, they have the Olympics there. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting us on Patreon. Patreon.com slash fanofhistory. Just a dollar an episode would help us out. Thanks, and see you next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.